This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Thanks for being with us on this blustery Sunday morning. We are going to talk a little bit more about housing, and certainly it's been in the news. In a few moments, we're going to talk to uh, the man who started the citizen group, uh, the Unfair Vancouver Vacant Homes Tax Coalition. But first, uh, William E. Reese is a professor emeritus of human ecology and ecological economics at the University of British Columbia, and he has written a piece in the TIE about uh, the housing crisis and and it's an interesting take on that. And he joins us on the line to talk a bit more. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Pleasure to be here. Uh, talk about your, your thoughts in this and what you've written about that. Uh, one of the questions in your piece is, uh, what if uh, what we are experiencing is not really a housing problem at all? What do you mean by that? Well, obviously, it is a problem for people who can't find affordable housing. But it's basically driven by global factors. The whole purpose of globalization is to break down national barriers to capital flows, trade, and so on. But people flows uh, don't work quite as easily. So what we really have in Vancouver now is a a labor market, which is determined by local conditions. And by the way, Vancouver is only a middle-income city. It's not a particularly high-income city. Uh, At the same time, then, we have a, a housing market, which is being increasingly global. So we have a conflict, really, between a local labor market and therefore wages and salaries uh, trying to operate in a housing market, which is now being partially set by global forces, the influx of capital from elsewhere. So Vancouver is a very attractive place to park money, uh, to invest in, in real estate and land prices. And of course, uh, in the world today, as the incomes of people everywhere grow, there are increasing numbers of people with lots of money. There are more millionaires in India than there are people in Canada, for example. And so uh, with that kind of attraction and that kind of money available, there's enormous capital flows moving into safe havens such as Canada, uh, Australia, and so on. And so we're having to compete with an influx of money. So what we've seen with globalization is a sequence in which, for example, ordinary people, our our workers, have had to compete with the impoverished in developing countries for their jobs. Now they're having to compete with the extremely wealthy people of the world for their housing. And you write about this as well, and it's not as though Canada is exempt from also purchasing. It's not just millionaires and wealthy people putting their money in housing markets such as Vancouver and Toronto. This happens all the time with countries purchasing big pieces of land in uh, underdeveloped areas as well. Yes, of course. I mean, what people don't really realize is the background to all of this. and The world's getting, in effect, ecologically full There's more and more competition for just about everything. Food prices will begin to rise uh, in the next few decades, for example. And as countries become less and less trustful of markets uh, for, for example, essentials such as food and fiber, uh, they're now increasingly looking for deals in in land. So wealthy countries, including places like Saudi Arabia, China, the United States is a big one as well, purchasing or or leasing on a long-term basis enormous tracts of land in underdeveloped, so-called underdeveloped countries elsewhere, mostly in Africa, South America, but increasingly here in Canada, including the interior of B.C. And where these are state-operated corporations or or large investment firms, they, they ship all of the goods produced on those lands back home. And in the process, by the way, there's a displacement of local people from their traditional land bases. So again, it's major capital from wealthy countries um, effectively blocking lower-income people in poor countries from access to vitals for their own survival. And we're just seeing the flip-flop of that. 
whereas internationally the land grab has traditionally been seen as rich countries buying rural lands in poorer countries, often with the help of uh, corrupt governments, by the way, who take enormous advantage of this. Um, here we're seeing the flip side, the urban, uh, as it were, the urban analog of land grabbing in poor countries, where we in rich countries are seeing uh, the very wealthy purchase our housing stock, or a good portion of it, something like 20% now of the high-end condominiums in the Vancouver region are owned offshore, for example. And you write about this as well, because in looking at that, and if you look at the the housing and who owns housing in Vancouver, for an example, how does somebody who, even if you make a good, what is considered a good wage in Vancouver, how do you compete with that? Well, you don't. That's the bottom line. At some point, you simply aren't in, in the marketplace, and you wind up having to move up the valley or, or move to another community where there is still an equilibrium between the local labor market and the local goods market, or the housing market in this case. So as I say, once again, we're in this very awkward situation where our local wages and salaries are simply not able to um, compete in a market which is now being driven to to a large extent by money coming in from elsewhere. There are solutions, I suppose, but uh, so far we seem to be politically reluctant to impose any of those kinds of solutions, and there'd be howls of protest from those who are benefiting locally. Exactly, because there are still, even though we, we see this, this um, as, you, as you put it, the situation now where the, you can't compete, but if you were somebody that happened to get into the market, say, 20 years ago, you are in a position where you probably could. Well, you probably could, but at what cost? So a lot of people in Vancouver, of course, there are thousands of single-family homeowners who have become millionaires over the last couple of decades, not through any effort of their own, but simply because of their rising property values. I mean, I'm in a situation where my house in many years earned more money than I did ever working at, at UBC. So uh, right now, a lot of people are sitting on two or three or four million dollars. It's, it's really a form of unearned income. And if it's a principal residence, of course, it's an untaxable capital gains. And so uh, these people would be extremely reluctant to, to give that up. So if any political party were to move rapidly to try to correct the situation, return our property values back to equilibrium with local wages and salaries, there'd be enormous protests from those who've benefited greatly from this. And of course, those will be the, the wealthier people in our own area who are more politically powerful than the people being displaced up the valley who can't find a home in the city. Uh, right. And, and along with the protests, there would also be, I would imagine, not a lot of incentive for government to do that, not only because of the protest, but government also makes a lot of money off a very hot housing market. Yeah, unfortunately, money drives our world, and that's the, the way we seem to behave. Uh, we have to begin to, over the next few decades, uh, make some very serious trade-offs between growth and wealth creation and the requirement for stable communities for some economic security of ordinary people. At some point, of course, you know, there will be, I think, civil unrest if, you, if this goes to the extreme. I'm not predicting anything here, but this is a kind of situation that can get out of hand. Are there other places, though, where we've seen this happen and there has been a reversal or there has been some move to try and rep- go back to that equilibrium? I haven't made a study of what the, the global response has been. I understand New Zealand, for example, has now um, imposed some kind of prohibition on the offshore sales of the property. Uh, that's an extreme measure. It may be one that's necessary, and, and it may actually work. 
So what I'm interested in is just the dynamics of what's happening. So I haven't actually studied what the responses have been elsewhere. There have been responses of the kind being contemplated here. We've already seen um, an unoccupied owner's tax. I guess we'll be talking about that in, in the next uh, session. Um, and as I say, an absolute prohibition on foreign land holdings. But very clever lawyers often get around these things. So it's questionable whether in the short term, at any rate, they, they make a great deal of difference. But I'm saying that as a non-expert. I'd like to take a look at the New Zealand case as time unfolds. Uh, because there are other cities where it's it's become accepted. If you look at places like London or San Francisco, I mean, you could be living in London, you could have a very good salary, and you would still be expected, if you wanted to be a homeowner, to live at least a, an hour or so out of the city. Yeah, well, that's the kind of world we have established. And uh, if we like it, fine. You know, we're always convinced that these people seem to be convinced that progress is inevitably a good thing. But if we, if this is progress, there's always winners, there's always losers. And increasingly in the kind of world we're seeing, the number of uh, winners is getting smaller and smaller, and the number of lure, losers is getting bigger and bigger. If you look at a country like the United States, well, even in Canada, you know, the average real wages in this country haven't increased in, since the 1970s when you correct for inflation and so on and so forth. And yet, because of changes in the tax system and the structure of the economy, uh, the wealthy classes are are fabulously richer than they were. In the U.S., again, the numbers aren't quite so good here, but something like 80% of the total increase in national income has gone to the top 1% of, of the population. So you're seeing an enormous increase in the income gap, in wage disparity. And we know very well from studies around the world that the larger that income gap, the, the lower population health. Now, this is one of the sources of uh, drug addiction, one of the sources of alcoholism, one of the sources of family breakdown. Just about every indicator of population health correlates very strongly with an increase in the income, back, uh, income gap. So the more and more unequal a society becomes, the more unhealthy it becomes. And one of the signs of that ill health is the incapacity of people to afford the necessities of life and having to take extreme measures to get them, such as moving far away from the place of work. And even businesses suffer. I mean, I know several around my own neighborhood who can't hire people to work uh, simply because people who <laughs> would work for minimum wage can't live in the neighborhood. And that you, pardon me, at UBC, we've had great trouble Uh, hiring new faculty on occasion. In fact, when I was director of the School of Planning, we lost faculty because they could no longer afford housing prices in Vancouver. So we lose quality of our education system and quality of life generally as this wage gap increases, driving perfectly good people with uh, excellent skills who could add a great deal to our community away. And uh, I'm afraid that's the kind of situation we're increasingly getting in where people simply give up the struggle. As I say, they cannot compete in these circumstances. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.